you have to follow the customer behavior. I have to follow the customer apps and et cetera. How does TikTok work? It doesn't work on a desktop. It works on a, on a phone. So the phone is now very important. It's the e-commerce master plan podcast here to help you solve your marketing problems and grow your e-commerce business. Cutting through the hype to bring you inspiration and advice from the e-commerce sector and beyond. Here's your host, Chloe Thomas. Hello and welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you for hitting play and choosing to listen to one of our inspiring guests. We've got a real treat for you today. We are going deep into the world of buying. What products you buy? We're going to be exploring both buying in other people's products, so working with brands and what you can do on those on that side of things. We're also going to be looking a bit at product development and your own product and also talking about how you make those two things work together if that's what you're doing in your business. To go through all of this, I've got the amazing James Barron joining us, who was the first head of buying for menswear at ASOS. You'll hear it in a minute, but his CV, I mean, he's, he's worked for all the bigs in fashion in this country, and he has a wealth of information that he's providing. This is going to be brilliant if you're a marketer who needs to know more about what buying you're up to so you can sell the products better. It's going to be good for you if you're someone who works in the buying department and wants to get better at it. It's also going to be good for you if you're an owner, founder, who's trying to work out how to manage all of this. Some really great advice coming up from James in this episode. So make sure you listen right to the end so you don't miss out on his top tips, which are excellent, and my own take on this episode. One thing to warn you about, there's a bit of a ticking noise in the background. We couldn't manage to get rid of it, so apologies. Uh, but yeah, that's that's on the podcast. It's not somewhere near you. If your tech stack is becoming a bottleneck to growth, it's time to replatform, and you should check out Shopline. Shopline is the modern commerce platform that's disrupting Europe as one of Asia's leading e-commerce platforms. Whether your bottleneck is setting up more sales channels like social commerce or expanding to new markets globally, Shopline takes care of everything from store setups, checkouts and payments to logistics and more. With single click migration and out of the box tools, they're there to help. The best part about it, you don't need to pay until your site is live. Here in the UK, they power brands like In The Style and Everything £5. Whilst in Asia, they're the platform of choice for huge brands like Lego and Muji. If you want to scale, it's time to book your free trial or have a chat with one of the Shopline team. Find out what Shopline could do for you via ecmp.info forward slash shopline. That's ecmp.info forward slash s-h-o-p-l-i-n-e. Super are on a mission to disrupt the payments landscape. In an industry where merchants are used to being charged for every swipe, tap or click, Super Payments is flipping the script and making the transaction 100% free. Yes, you heard that right. 100% free. Plus, Super offers a free loyalty program so you can pass the savings generated from free payments back to your customers as cash rewards. Thousands of brands are already seeing increases of over 40% in their retention rates because of this. Everybody wins. If you ship or sell to the UK, sign up for a demo now at ecmp.info forward slash super. That's ecmp.info forward slash s-u-p-e-r. 
On that landing page, you'll also find full T's and C's and details of how you could get a special £5 welcome bonus for your customers. And now to introduce our special guest. James Barron is a fashion buyer. With over 13 years at ASOS and previous roles at Envy, Mossbros, M&S and Arcadia, there is very little James doesn't know about either buying third-party brands in or product development of your own brand fashion. Hello, James. Thank you for such a nice introduction, Chloe. Cheers. Uh, my pleasure. It's brilliant to have someone with your depth of experience on the show and as we were talking about earlier having both sides both the buying in other brands and the product development is quite unique so I'm looking forward to getting into all of that but before we do how did you get into the world of e-commerce? Into e-commerce well that was really probably when I joined ASOS because before most of my roles were bricks and mortar and obviously managing hundreds of stores etc working around that but 2010 so 13 and a half years ago because of my branded experience and my product development, I guess I was one of a few candidates potentially who was suitable for the role when they were recruiting. And I was the first head of buying for menswear at ASOS, a very small team. And I was the first manager which came in on time. So they chose me and obviously the rest is history now. And making that move from predominantly bricks and high street stores to online does it make much difference when you're at the buying side of things I mean I know as a marketer it makes a huge difference because your customers are coming in a different place but with buying I always think you're right at the beginning of the process so is it that different? Uh, the buying process itself I guess is, is exactly the same how you produce product and bring to market but I guess the advantage of online very early on was that you have no restrictions in terms of density and space because you can buy far more options um, and you you know you don't have to fit it into a store. Your store is endless. It has no walls. So if jeans are on track, a bricks and mortar store will have lots of jeans but potentially have less of a trousers as well online. You just put out the right products and continue to, uh, to test and learn. So one of the things it gave us was a huge amount of width now, which has obviously driven a lot of choice. That gave, I think, a lot more freedom to the buyers and also complicated it because they buying a lot more options and that was a slightly different challenge to what you have in bricks and mortar. Yeah, we often say that constraint creates better results, you know, and you have to make those tough decisions. But did you miss the constraint at any time or was the freedom of being able to go wide on everything just too good? I think the constraint works two ways. I think the constraint can become a constraint in terms of how... People buy, they, they're scared of change. They tend to go, well, that, that was good last year, so we'll repeat that or we'll do a version of that. I think online, what it gave us was, as we, you know, you build a structure into the process. So, yes, you continue with the winners and you build a process, but it also gives you far more freedom to trial, far more freedom to test, um, as long as you buy that stock appropriately. And, again, if you're thinking about the volume that you'd have to buy for a store, you know, you need to fill up a rack and have all the sizes and all that kind of thing into, you know, 100, 200 stores. Suddenly you've got a lot of cash tied up in, in that stock. Online, you know, if you could buy 50 units, as we once did, or 200 and 300 units, no one knows whether you bought 300 units or 20,000. So it gives you the ability to test. It gives you the ability to react also means you can also buy daily really and monthly so you know in a store you'd set yourself out and you'd have you know six eight weeks of the same stock and some of it might change online you'd follow the trend if something started to work then you'd maneuver into that and you'd pull out something else 
So it gave the buyers a lot more freedom. And obviously that generates a big wheel of success. So if you can get that wheel going and you're spending budget, that generates more budget because you've turned the cash very quickly. The biggest constraint was how do you get a buyer to buy, I don't know, 600 jeans in one season. You have to then bring in different segmentation customer profiles because trying to get a buyer to buy 600, you could end up with a lot of contrived products. So one of the things that I learned being in commerce was, you know, we had eight to 10 segments on ASOS design while potentially in a store you might only have two so what i mean by that you might have a kind of scandy look and you might have something a bit more kind of love island and you create these personas and then you know you build up your range based on customers you also build your range based on events and occasions and that's definitely happened over the last 10 years you know people get dressed to go to the airport nowadays and that's a very important part of their their day and so they've got an airport look then they get to obviously to the if they're going away, they might have a beach look, they might have a beach to bar look, they might have a night look. So the way people process and determine what they wear. So by spreading that out and creating these personas, you can obviously therefore, you know, keep the range fairly consistent in terms of its end use. ASOS was about 20-something fashion. So that gave us a very clear channel of who to produce for. The buyers only had to think of one end, end age group rather than, you know, a 20 or 30 or 40 year olds. And you tend to find that there's quite a lot of differences between those. So, again, that, that, that was helpful in terms of uh, profiling um, and giving the buyers and the designers the opportunity to create new products. So is personas and those different, both the, I guess, both the persona of the customer and the event they're buying for? So from the Scandi look to the airport look to the beach look and so forth. Is that now a, a really key thing to define before you start any buying journey? Is that where it all begins now for a, for a good buyer? Whether you buy bricks and mortar online, I mean, you need to know who your customer is, I guess, first of all. Who are you buying for? What is the business about? What's your age group? What's your fashion sense? Can you sell extreme fashion or you core fashion? You need to understand the market. And that's also understanding who your competition is, who your aspirational brands might be. And they may change for, you know, if you've got different looks. You may go down a street look and have different aspirational brands in that corner. And you might go smarter and go for a slightly different look on the other side. So, you know, buying is just about setting out a plan um, based on who you want to aim for and attract. And obviously the results of that come through in sales. You adapt the sales and the performance to what customers want. You know, one of the greatest tips I think I can ever say is if you follow a customer, the customer will reward you. So keep close to the customer, wherever they may be. And that also includes the channels that they shop in. You know, when I started, it was all on it was all on a laptop or a desktop. 80% of purchases today are on a phone. A lot of fashions now moved into the TikTok space, while before it was obviously on Instagram, etc., or YouTube. So you have to keep following because on TikTok is a different type of potential uh, look and feel and the audience changes so you just need to keep following the customer whoever they may be for uh, your business got you it never occurs to me that buying or worrying about what channel the marketing's happening in but i suppose you have to don't you if you're going to do this well so my next question to you james then is you have been able to work across both looking at the brands that are out there and selecting items to put into the range as well as own product development so how once you once you've got that idea of who the customer is and what they're looking for how do you decide what's going to be an own brand and what's going to be bought in is there a, a clear and obvious 
decision or is it does it come down to what's available well old by obviously is under the the house name so asos design was the asos main owned by range uh, we did have about 17 we had created some other owned by ranges which did certain looks or feels or segmentations i think there's asos edition asos white asos black's been around and each one has a story but asos design is probably in terms of a brand it stocks the product for everybody. So it's not just a street look or a Scandi look or a Love Island look or, or skinny jeans. It's got baggy jeans. So it offers products and a variety of products at a price point that you've determined. The branded side, as I said before, ASOS decided it wanted to become a 20-something business. Now, when I joined ASOS, we had Acne on our site. We had Comme de Garçon on our site. Obviously, when we decided to become 20-something focused and really go after the kind of top man, top shop market at the time, that was where we then did an edit of our brands. We wanted to go into more skinny jean brands, which created brands like Cheap Monday and Dr. Denim at the time because brands weren't particularly doing the skinny jean, you know, 2010, 11. They, they thought that, that trend was going to die. I mean, I wish it did, but it didn't. <laughs> and it went on for another 10 or 11 years. So therefore, you choose brands which are obviously applicable to a 20-something customer, which is about price. You know, we bought all the brands from Nike. We stocked brands which are competition, Pull and Bear, Inditex. We had Top Man. We had, obviously, River Island and New Look are still on the site. And we went slightly higher in terms of brands like Ralph Lauren and Fred Perry. What we didn't do, though, was we didn't go any further in terms of luxury. We didn't feel that was where we wanted to go as a business. We wanted to have a broad appeal to 20-somethings. It's not to say financially 20-somethings can't afford some of the luxury brands, but you know we wanted a certain purpose and fashion for everybody, and it, and it kind of made sense that we kept our brands aligned with ASOS in terms of price or fashion. And every brand does something different. You know, you've got brands who are very strong on denim or strong on outerwear or knitwear or polos or jersey and you buy some you see what happens and then you go and find the next one you know if you look at it as a department store you tend to find that brands would sit next to each other in the department store there's these adjacencies so you'd start to build out portfolios and we'd have a denim team and we might have a tailoring team and we'd have maybe a heritage team which would be the barbers and the ralphs put together because those would those would generally look you find those in one store and then we had a trend team which went out looking for brand new brands uh, which hadn't been come to market, bedroom brands as we used to call them in the olden days, uh, generally Jersey based, you know, which brought in, you know, exciting products, product which wasn't seen on other sites as well, as well as underpinned by market leaders like, you know, PVH with Tommy Hilfinger and Calvin Klein and Nike, Adidas, etc., which we added later in our stage at ASOS to create. If most people today, own a pair of trainers and ASOS needed to get some trainers so we developed into sportswear 2005 onwards really as part of completing the look of what you know most people would wear today. So the brands that are stocked and the products that are stocked are crucial to both satisfying the customer and creating the ethos I guess of the overall company so then is the own brand developed product does that become filling in the gaps of what's not available everywhere else or the kind of like the bellwethers that we must have these so we'll design them ourselves you know obviously some brands i could tell you what it's going to look like in 20 years time you know the range will not move on it has a heritage and that's what the brand's great at what we tried to do was asos was 
a broad church. Um, it was uh, the magic of the own by. We had, you know, we could go from skinny jeans to long line, you know, to scuba. And we, we kept pushing and testing, you know, and using our designers and our travel and finding any micro trend that we had. So we would push into those quite quickly. But there were brands out there who were also quite quick, particularly some of the younger brands. But what it did was it gave a halo effect. So if Street was big and we got Carhartt and Owned By did an element of it, then it kind of underpins the fact that you've you've got the product. I mean, one of the things that ASOS we wanted to do from day one was, I don't know, if, if denim jackets were on trend, we wanted to offer the customer the greatest choice of denim jackets. So that would be ASOS, may have 10, but then we have denim jackets from Levi's or whoever. And there'd be a price difference. Some might start at £30 and some might finish at 150 But if we publish and said, right, it's the season for denim jackets, come and find it. We've got truckers, we've got westerns. You give that choice and breadth and say fashion is for everyone. Now you make a decision on preference, a price, fabric, rather than saying we want, you know, this is this is how you have to dress, this is the brand you have to buy. We try to give that to the customer as an option and say, you know, here you go, now take a look. You know, we were one of the few businesses which brought our competition onto our site. You know, we bought on, as I said, some of the high street competitors who we were up against. And one of the main reasons for that as well was the space online in terms of traffic is all about having one app or one site. So ASOS, you know, realized very early on that having a place where you could buy four or five or six or ten garments in one go across your favorite brands and favorite stores was quite a nice way of then getting one delivery rather than getting three or four deliveries or spending time to go and shop different places. People came to ASOS and said, right, this selection is amazing. I can buy all this selection. And yes, it would probably have an ASOS design product within that as well. But it would also have, you know, different products from different brands. And that's what made it quite successful. Excellent. Loving the way you're explaining this, James. Now, I'm sure we've got plenty of people listening who are all about the product development on the buying side. I'm sure we've got got many who are all about the buying brands in so can we can we pick your brains a bit for advice for those specific uh, buyers or founders who are who are doing these jobs so if someone's looking to buy in brands other people's product to sell on their e-commerce store and their bricks and click store what are the key tenets of success for them what do they need to make sure they're on top of to make this work for them to buy brands as i said before you need to decide who you are and what customer you want to aim for so the brands that you go after are Brands which uh, are out in the market, which reinforce the fashion of today, uh, whether it's products or whether it's a big movement in terms of streetwear or sportswear and is equivalent, you know, for your 20-something customer. So that's the first point of call. What you're also trying to do is bring a brand on and show people how they can wear it differently. ASOS was out of 20-something market, so one of the things we benefited from was getting brands to buy into the ASOS concept of look and feel. You know, at ASOS, the way we shoot product was always seen as a USP. It was always quite positive and proactive. The models were different. We didn't chop the heads off. We always showed the model. And that began to tell quite a nice story. So, you know, the brands, you know, you, you bring brands on, you bring some for a season because something's hot, you might get rid of them after a season or two. Some brands, it's about a relationship, which you've had in built for 10 or, you know, 15 years. Some brands would like some input into fashion or product development or ideas and allow you to do SMUs. Some brands allow you to buy what they 
basically show. But ASOS probably gave us a slightly different fashion tip. Uh, we could sell not just the core product, but we could also push the boundaries and probably sell some more exciting product as well because you saw it on a model and that model may not look quite like you, but it gave you a very good representation of how it fitted and gave you the confidence then to maybe try that kind of product, etc. Got you. You said SMUs in there. I have no idea what that means. What's an SMU? SMU is a special manufacturing unit. So effectively, a brand is normally a selection process. So you would generally have a buyer who might buy 40 brands. Those 40 brands would give you, you know, three or 4,000 products. An SMU is where you work with the brand in advance to develop it for that season. So it might be colorway traditionally, or it might be actually new ranges uh, or extension of ranges. So the product can be exclusive. It doesn't have to be, but you generally will push the boundaries a little bit. We worked very closely with North Face, who had a very strong menswear business, very tiny women's wear business. And working with them, we, we helped to kind of bring their younger women's wear business to the fore. You know, we created the Nupsy with them um, in terms of new colorways. We used their glassier fleece and developed that into tank tops, etc. And it changed their market. And suddenly they suddenly had a, you know, 30, 40% mix of women's wear in a, in a business, which traditionally the 20-year-old wouldn't have bought in the past. It had too many darts in it. It was old-fashioned. Uh, the colors were wrong. You know, and if a brand allows you sometimes to do that, and the brand has to want to do that because it's their brand and it's their brand equity, then there are opportunities for them to test and learn as well. Yeah, huge opportunities for everybody when that works out. And then for those people who are listening who are developing their own products to sell, what's the key advice when you're when you're doing that from the buying perspective? Obviously you need product. You need to design what the range looks like, options, price extension, quality of, of garment, you know, who are you trying to hit as your customer? You then also need to then find a way of manufacturing it. Are you close to home? Are you long lead? Do you do a mix of both? You know, we like to try and have both long lead and short lead. Reactivity, we tend to get smaller minimums closer to home. But if you go further afield, the units are bigger. So sometimes it, it depends on the scale of your business. But you need to try and keep a speed to market. You need to try and find a way of being able to repeat in season. So you need to build in flexibility. Um, and that's another relationship with the manufacturer in terms of can they hold yarn, can they hold fabric, can we buy smaller units, try several things, and if it works, then we go back and repeat and buy bigger. But ultimately, you just need to decide what your range is, and you buy it with authenticity. You know, if it's about knitwear and about a merino jumper or whatever, and you want to do it in a crew neck, then how many colorways are you going to do? How do you buy that appropriately in terms of, you know, you put your bigger buys into perhaps classic navies and, and blacks but but if it's about a color as well how do you maintain the same color palette through the season so that when someone's looking for a, a red then the red in jersey and the red in leisure are the same red because sometimes you find you know so you just it's all about consistency it's about owning the brand in some respects apart from you tend to have one small sliver of that brand rather than the whole thing now Last year, we had Alison Metcalf on giving us the merchandiser's perspective on e-commerce, where we ended up talking about how important it is to build strong relationships with the buyers uh, and also with marketing. How do you find it works best when you're working with the merchandising team? Because they're two very different skill sets, but so often just referred to as, oh, that's buying and merchandising. But it is generally two separate teams. So how does that, how do you find it works best? It's two separate teams, but ultimately they need to be a team. 
they need to be empowered to have full ownership of their purchase workers in tandem or if it's a designer as well in, with the designer in terms of a free because ultimately you know you're buying one season um so you might be in the middle of autumn winter today that stock's coming through you're trading that stock you're trying to clear the stock you're trying to um, clear up some mistakes or try and repeat into season you're probably building or built most of your spring 24 range already you probably started to place some of it but not all of it you've got some otb and then you're also thinking about autumn 24 as well which is based on what you're currently seeing today in terms of fashion trends and current sales so there's a very unique relationship whereby a good team has to have a strong buyer and a strong merchandiser. It can't just have one or the other because it doesn't work. You need to be able to have relationships with the supply base and the factories in terms of where you are, in terms of turning product off or pulling product forward. And for me, it's never just been about being a, the buyer owns this and the merchandiser owns that. For me, there has to be a, you know, a relationship between both of them need to look at the cover. Both of them need to look at sell-through. Both of them need to challenge them price. Both of them need to be aware of the competition and understand what changes it can make. You're never going to buy a season perfectly. It's how do you react and get out of the mistakes or the opportunities and bring those opportunities in. And that has to be aligned across both rather than just one. And it's so therefore for me, it, you know, we always built teams. And I don't buy, I probably had 20 teams all doing the same thing. And that relationship was very, very important. And obviously that relationship is key to a successful buying activity. And buying has, it's kind of the beginning of the profitability of a business. The beginning of the success and the growth of a business starts with what product you've actually got on the shelf. So I guess what I'm trying to ask, James, is for anyone out there who is a few years, maybe five, 10 years into their buying job journey, their buying career, what are the key things they need to make sure they're doing so they know they're making the best impact they can have in the business they're, they're working for in terms of profit and sales growth, et cetera, but also in terms of constructing a, a hugely successful career? I mean, buying is very simple for me. It's about you have a lump sum of money and you purchase that product to turn it back into money as quickly as possible. If you can turn it as quickly as possible, that therefore gives you more money to spend. The issues arise when it doesn't work or hasn't worked or et cetera, and that money then gets tied up. But ultimately, buying is just about buying stock and selling it. And therefore, you need to line everything up. You need to be able to get stock back in quickly. There's no point going out to Bangladesh and buying loads of stock, but you can't, you know, you can't sell anything unless it's in your warehouse. There's no point in having it on a ship, claiming you've got 70% intake margin when you don't get it for six or eight weeks. You could have bought it locally at a smaller margin and... and and, and made sales. For me, exit margin is as important as intake margin. Uh, I think too many businesses look at intake margin as the KPI for a buyer. I think that takes product first away in some respects for me. It downgrades product sometimes. Buyers are looking for a 3P saving here and a 4P saving there. And sometimes they're taking away the essence of what a product should be. So exit margin for me is really important. But you do need to understand what intake margin means as well. And the more love you put into the product, the generally the customer rewards you would purchase. You know, taking little details off, which were part of the reason why you picked that product up on a trip to the Far East or Japan or whatever. That's the reason why you bought it. Sometimes people take that away. So for me, product has to be king. Product has to be first. And sometimes we cut too many corners in the pursuit of intake margin which might look good on paper, 
but ultimately the exit margin is the key. The sell through is the key thing. The cover is the key thing. If you can control your stock, that will give you your exit margin, which will be far better and far more rewarding than just going after an intake margin because the product tends to be a bit bland sometimes when people buy like that. E-commerce master plan is supported by some of the greatest companies in the e-commerce sector. Here's a reminder of who they are. If your tech stack is becoming a bottleneck to growth, it's time to replatform, and you should check out Shopline. Shopline is the modern commerce platform that's disrupting Europe as one of Asia's leading e-commerce platforms. Whether your bottleneck is setting up more sales channels like social commerce or expanding to new markets globally, Shopline takes care of everything from store setups, checkouts and payments to logistics and more. With single click migration and out of the box tools, they're there to help. The best part about it, you don't need to pay until your site is live. Here in the UK, they power brands like In The Style and Everything £5. Whilst in Asia, they're the platform of choice for huge brands like Lego and Muji. If you want to scale, it's time to book your free trial or have a chat with one of the Shopline team. Find out what Shopline could do for you via ecmp.info forward slash shopline. That's ecmp.info forward slash s-h-o-p-l-i-n-e. Super are on a mission to disrupt the payments landscape. In an industry where merchants are used to being charged for every swipe, tap or click, Super Payments is flipping the script and making the transaction 100% free. Yes, you heard that right. 100% free. Plus, Super offers a free loyalty program so you can pass the savings generated from free payments back to your customers as cash rewards. Thousands of brands are already seeing increases of over 40% in their retention rates because of this. Everybody wins. If you ship or sell to the UK, sign up for a demo now at ecmp.info forward slash super. That's ecmp.info forward slash s-u-p-e-r. On that landing page, you'll also find full T's and C's and details of how you could get a special £5 welcome bonus for your customers. It's time for the Top Tips Round. Okay, I love this section because it gives me and our listeners some really quick ideas for taking our businesses to the next level. So, James, are you ready for the top tips? Yes, give it a good go. Okay, the book top tip. If everyone listening to this podcast agreed to take Friday off and read a book to make their business better, which book would you recommend? Slightly left field, potentially, but there's a book called Legacy, which was written by a guy called uh, James Kerr, which is based on the All Blacks New Zealand uh, rugby team. Uh, but it's it's not really a sports book. It's more of a management book. And it's about how you build a team. And we talked about team earlier between buyers, merchandisers and designers. And it's about what you do in terms of how you build your team, what the purpose is behind the team. You know, if you look at what the All Blacks have done over the last 20, 30 years from, you know, a, a quite a small population to be world, best in world class, the way they manage each other, the way they treat the jersey as a baton to be passed on to the next person. 
Um, just quite a nice piece within how you come to work to represent something rather than just representing yourself. And I think that's a really key part of being a team and you know how you build that into practice is quite interesting. So if you like a bit of sport and if you don't like sport, I still think it's a very interesting conversation. So The Legacy by James Kerr. Great recommendation. Yeah, I think there's so much we can learn from sport where it's so much... You know, the scoring process is so much simpler than it is in business. So a uh, great, great place to be learning from. The traffic top tip, which marketing method do you either prize above all others or think doesn't get the press it deserves? I'm a bit old fashioned. I think product comes first. I think you can market anything, but unless you've got a really great product, then it kind of becomes a little bit meaningless. If your campaign's about denim, then obviously the best denim range suddenly becomes far easier to talk about, far easier to sell, far easier to get customers involved. So for me, it's a communication between the buying team and the marketing team, getting the marketing team and the buying team aligned in terms of what you've done, what's different, is it about sustainability, is it about wash? And I think having a real understanding about that product moment makes the marketing piece far easier to develop a brief around. Yeah, I totally agree with that. As a marketer, the better the product is, the easier the job becomes. Okay, the tool top tip, maybe a collaboration tool, a social media plugin, a phone app, or just a way of working. Is there a cool little tool you use that makes you and your team more efficient from day to day? I think the phone is probably the biggest change. So, you know, if you look at my career from ASOS, probably about 2016, 17, the phone became the biggest traffic driving revenue driver for ASOS. And actually, we had to change the buyers from looking at their laptops every day to actually looking at the product on their phone because it is different. You know, the, the images are slightly smaller. You probably we went from four images to three, obviously, to fit on the pages, etc. cetera, um, how, how you then search, etc. And the phone has now become, obviously, the most used. It's 80 to 85% of people's purchasing behaviour, particularly in the Western area world, is, uh, is through a phone. You know, so if you haven't got a phone, you haven't got an app. And if you haven't got an app, then you probably haven't got a business today because that's how particularly 20-somethings and younger shop. That's how they interact. That's how they book their restaurants. That's how they, they buy from Amazon. That's how they use Shopify or Spotify, etc. I think the phone has become crucial, but you have to use the phone as part of your comp shopping, as part of looking at different brands, because that's how a customer sees it. And I think we talked about earlier, following the customer. You have to follow the customer behavior. You have to follow the customer apps and et cetera. How does TikTok work? It doesn't work on a, on a, on a desktop. It works on a, on a phone. So the phone is now very important. You've got to be looking at it like the customer does. Totally agree with you there, James. Uh, and finally, the carbon top tip. What's your favorite way to reduce the carbon footprint of an e-commerce store? We need to reduce returns. It's actually far more carbon neutral for an online retailer to sell t- to a customer because it can obviously generate product and obviously go into vans which contain hundreds and hundreds and therefore the movement of the carbon is far smaller. The issue becomes when customers buy products and return products on a regular basis and if they return the product several times without keeping the product, then ultimately that creates carbon. So I think retailers need to try and reduce returns and customers need to decide do they want to put a little bit back into the world and potentially use different ways of returning products. Or actually, you know, instead of buying those four or five pairs of jeans when you only intended to keep one, is there a way of, you know, maybe not buying four and maybe buying two? 
and seeing whether they they work. And also, you know, retailers have to start to try and find better ways of getting the right size and the right product out to customers. So when they receive it, the fit obviously is is far easier for them to get in through virtual fit or recommendation tools. Uh, but if you could reduce returns within the online e-commerce sector, that would add a huge amount of benefits to carbon neutral policy. Yeah, but not the easiest one to fix, though. But I love the fact you brought it up there, James. Thank you so much. Now, before we say goodbye, could you please let the listeners know where they can find you if they want to get in touch? Yeah, if anyone wants to contact me, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, James Barron. You should be able to find me quite straightforward. And then if you message me, then um, I will definitely come back to you. Brilliant. James, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been fascinating chatting buying with you. um, And I know the audience will have got a lot out of it. So thanks so much for sparing the time. Okay, thank you so much, Chloe. Cheers. Fascinating insights there from James. I mean, the, the number of bits I've written down to repeat to you at this point in time. So As I'm frequently saying about the marketing, completely agree with James. You've got to follow the customer. The customer has all those answers. I think that when he was talking about how deep they went with working with specific brands, I think the key with that is to work out which brand you should be going deep with. You're not going to take that North Face full product range development with a brand you're only planning on working with for one season. So be clear about what level those different relationships are going to get to. Pay attention to your entry margin and your exit margin. If you're wondering what that is, that's the margin which you buy it at. So what price if you sell it at full price? Exit margin being what margin you actually made it when it actually had gone out the warehouse. Very important numbers. Your profitability of your business is based on the exit margin, not the entry margin. The entry margin is the skill of your buyer. The exit margin is how well it sells very roughly speaking. The more love you put into the product, the more the customers will reward you by buying it. So focus in the right places. Look at the product as the customer does. I'm not sure I totally agree with James in terms of if you don't have an app, you're dead in the water these days. But I do think we, me included, should be spending more time looking at our websites on mobiles because that's where the customer is actually exploring them. If you're a retailer with 80% plus traffic on mobile and you don't have the key handsets lurking around the office so everyone can have a look at what things are looking like on mobile, you are missing a trick. And there was just loads of great insight there on how to do the buying well. And buying is where the profit of your business begins, where that whole journey of of everything that happens in your business really begins. So I guess I'm just really pleased that James was willing to spare the time to come and talk to us about all of that. So I hope you got lots out of it too. You can get your hands on the notes from this episode, including the top tips and links to what we've mentioned by heading over to ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash podcast or use our direct episode short links. Just put ecmp.info forward slash the number of this episode into the URL bar and you'll go straight to the correct episode page. Now, when you get to the website, you can also add yourself to our email list so you don't miss out on any of the other things I share to help you improve your business, including if you're into returns, we are going to be doing a webinar about the big old returns problem fairly soon. So make sure you're on the email list because they'll be the first people to hear about when that goes live. And if you like this episode, then do have a listen to a recent episode we did with the marvellous Alison Metcalf. I referenced it in the interview where we went deep into merchandising, the other half of the yin yang of buying and merchandising. That's episode 465 and was just a couple of months ago. So a fascinating one to add into this. 
And thank you so much for tuning into this episode and all that you do of the e-commerce master plan podcast. I bring you a new interview every week because I want to inspire and help e-commerce business owners like you to succeed and thrive with your businesses, including progressing along the path to net zero. So if you know someone this show can help, maybe you know an aspiring buyer or someone who's trying to work out how to spend their open to buy their OTB for 2024, then please do tell them to listen to this episode and all the others of the e-commerce master plan podcast. I hope you have a brilliant week and don't forget to keep optimizing thank you for listening to the e-commerce master plan podcast find out more at ecommercemasterplan.com slash podcast if your tech stack is becoming a bottleneck to growth it's time to replatform and you should check out shopline Shopline is the modern commerce platform that's disrupting Europe as one of Asia's leading e-commerce platforms. Whether your bottleneck is setting up more sales channels like social commerce or expanding to new markets globally, Shopline takes care of everything from store setups, checkouts and payments to logistics and more. With single click migration and out of the box tools, they're there to help. The best part about it, you don't need to pay until your site is live. Here in the UK, they power brands like In The Style and Everything £5, whilst in Asia, they're the platform of choice for huge brands like Lego and Muji. If you want to scale, it's time to book your free trial or have a chat with one of the Shopline team. Find out what Shopline could do for you via ecmp.info forward slash shopline. That's ecmp.info forward slash s-h-o-p-l-i-n-e.